University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Nick Pereso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. We're excited to bring you an interview we did with retired Admiral James Stavridis to discuss his naval career, policymaking at NATO, retired flag officers in politics, and international peace building and security. We also talked about the relationship between the Department of Defense and journalism. Admiral Stavridis is best known for serving as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO from 2009 to 2013. In that position, he oversaw all NATO military operations. During that time, he served concurrently as Commander of U.S. European Command, in charge of all U.S. military operations in Europe. After retiring from the Navy, he became Dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and is now a consultant, news commentator, and chairman of the U.S. Naval Institute in Annapolis, Maryland. Admiral Stavridis is a prolific author, and his most recent book discusses the importance of sea power. Here's the interview. Admiral Stavridis, thank you so much for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. We really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure to join. Sir, the end of your career in the Navy, you served as the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO from 2009 to 2013. Now, most people know that NATO was founded to counteract the Soviet Union, but there's no longer a Soviet Union today. So how has NATO's role and mission evolved over the last few decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union? There were actually three reasons for the formation of NATO, one of which you mentioned. And a simple shorthand is a quote from Lord Pug Ismay, who was the first secretary general of NATO. And he said that NATO was formed to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. And that's kind of shorthand for Yes, it was a bulwark against the Soviet Union, but it had two other important purposes. One was to keep the United States engaged in the affairs of Europe. And the other was to ensure that European nations did not end up going to war again. In fact, I always said as the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO that the greatest accomplishment of NATO is not that no other nation ever attacked a NATO nation. The greatest accomplishment of NATO is that no NATO nation attacked another NATO nation in the sense that Europe had been roiled by war for 2,000 years, but now has enjoyed 70 years of peace on that continent, largely because of NATO. Which brings us to what's relevant today about NATO. I would argue all three of those fundamental missions still exist, that while Russia, the Russian Federation, is a, a mere shadow of the former Soviet Union. It's still a dangerous, it's still an, a difficult interlocutor. They've invaded Ukraine. They put undue pressure on peripheral countries around their borders. 
Um, and they kind of threaten NATO a little bit. They try to put pressure on the Baltic states and so forth. So I think there's still a NATO mission in deterring Russian adventurism in Europe. Secondly, NATO is an important part of keeping Europe uh, relatively unified. And that's even more important now as the Brits contemplate and I think will pull out of the European Union, as the Italians are less and less inclined to be part of the European project as we see Poland and Hungary pulling away in the east. So I think NATO is is still a kind of a, a glue that can help hold the European project together. And thirdly, let's face it, the United States under President Trump seems less inclined to want to be globally involved in ways that we've been in the past. So I think NATO provides a kind of a, a plank, if you will, in the transatlantic bridge. It's creaking a little bit, but I think all three of those missions are still important. And therefore, I think NATO, if you will, kind of 2.0, 3.0 even, is still quite relevant. So you mentioned already the current administration, the current president's um, previous comments about NATO. There's an impression out there that this administration is skeptical about the importance of NATO. And in your role, your former role as the Supreme Allied Commander, you serve under the American president as an American military officer and also as a NATO four-star. So how, how would you respond to that in that role? What kinds of things would you be talking about in your conversations with allied officials or military leaders? Well, you're right to put your finger on the duality of being both the supreme allied commander of NATO, in which you report to, in my day, 28 nations, today, 29 nations with the addition of Macedonia. So in your NATO hat as supreme allied commander, you're reporting to the heads of state and government of 29 uh, separate nations. And so I would go and brief President Obama and uh, Nicolas Sarkozy of France and Angela Merkel of Germany and David Cameron of the United Kingdom, etc. So in that hat, you have kind of 29 bosses, if you will, uh, in the North Atlantic Council, as it's called. You are also a U.S. combatant commander uh, in charge of uh, all U.S. forces in Europe and the Levant. And that job, of course, is called a commander U.S. European command. And in that job, you report to the secretary of defense and then to the president. So two very separate jobs, but they kind of come together in the sense that the U.S. forces in Europe are also part of the uh, Supreme Allied Commander's remit and part of his or her force structure and uh, therefore, the two jobs come together in the single person. To give you a practical example of this, when General Wesley Clark was the Supreme Allied Commander, he got in a fairly contentious uh, situation with the then Secretary of Defense, um, Secretary Cohen. And this is well documented in uh, General Clark's memoir. And in that case, uh, Secretary Cohen was trying to give him direction about how to uh, act as the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. And General Clark said to Secretary Cohen, uh, Sir, as you know, I'm an alliance officer, and I want you to know that I'm listening intently to everything you are telling me with one sixteenth of my mind, meaning there are 15 other 
nations to whom he also had to report. I thought that was a pretty bold statement. I'm not sure I would have said that to Secretary Gates, but I think that it, it, it was an accurate statement that he, any Supreme Allied commander owes the United States its fair share of attention, but you have to listen equally to the Brits and the French and the Germans and the Italians and the Bulgarians. And if you do that well, um, you can balance all that in ways that do not become contentious. And then when your U.S. boss, Secretary of Defense, wants to tell you to do something in your U.S. hat with your U.S. forces, of course, you're going to salute smartly and move out and do that. So it requires uh, a complexity of, I would say, both command and control and also personality in order to manage those twin jobs. I think what makes the role of Supreme Allied Commander really unique as well is that you're dealing with defense policy making, but at an international level. Can you talk a little bit about how that international perspective with defense policy making uh, might be uniquely different from the national concern? Sure. Let's, again, practical example. Uh, let's take Afghanistan. Uh, as the Supreme Allied Commander, my one of my many missions was the uh, NATO mission to Afghanistan. And I had about 150,000 troops uh, working for me in that capacity there from uh, the 28 nations of NATO and from 22 other nations. There were uh, troops on the ground from 50 different allied partner and friend countries. And so you had a vast majority of uh, of, of input from all of these different nations about how and where their troops should be deployed and uh, under what constraints they could operate. These were called caveats. Um, and it was extremely complex uh, to manage that. And the, the thing that it required, frankly, was uh, getting on the jet and going to national capitals and working hard to understand the culture, the history, the current circumstances of each of these nations so that you could best accommodate their desires and their ability to contribute. And, and the way I would phrase that is we, we should spend less time yelling at our allies about trying to get them to do something that in the end they're not going to do, and instead spend time finding out what they are willing to do and bringing it all together. I'll close with a quote from Churchill, who said that the only thing worse than trying to fight a war with a bunch of different allies is trying to fight a war without any allies. I think that makes a lot of sense. In other words, let each contribute according to their abilities and forgive them when they cannot contribute in some particular way. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, the, the net of all of us working together is always going to be stronger than any one of us, even the United States working alone. So I was talking to one of our friends here at UChicago about this interview. I was telling him that we're interviewing Admiral Stavridis, and he said, oh, that's that guy who was on the shortlist for Hillary Clinton's um, vice presidential nomination. And we did look that up. The New York Times reported that you were being considered as a vice presidential nominee in the last campaign. And then later that year, after the election, you were rumored to be in the running for secretary of state. Um, that had to be, have been a really interesting several months for you. It was, and um, both are true. And I was uh, vetted for vice president, one of only six people that were formally vetted by the campaign. 
Um, although I have to tell you, when I was first approached about whether I'd be interested in being vetted for vice president uh, and being on the short list for vice president, I said, surely you mean you're collecting a list of short people because <laughs> I'm, I'm only five foot five inches tall. And that was the only short list I could imagine being on. Um, and I also told John Podesta, who was Hillary's campaign manager, former chief of staff in the White House, uh, I said, you know, John, this is never going to work out because Stavridis is too long to fit on a bumper sticker. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I enjoyed is probably the wrong word, but I learned a lot going through, excuse me, going through the vetting process. And um, had she been elected, I would have been willing to go into government and serve uh, in her administration. Uh, then the election happened, and um, I was approached at that point by uh, Reince Priebus, who was the chief of staff to the president-elect, President-elect Trump, and he invited me down to Trump Tower for an interview. And I went down there and um, had a, uh, a pretty good conversation with President Trump for about an hour and was ultimately um, offered potentially a cabinet level position. Um, I, I declined that uh, at the end of the day because I felt um, I had too many fundamental policy disagreements uh, with President-elect Trump over everything from NATO to the walking away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership to the position of the administration on the environment. I just had a lot of fundamental policy dis disagreements. And so I, I felt I could not effectively serve. My takeaway from all of that is uh, as a military officer, uh, a former military officer, I'm a registered independent. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I was uh, vetted by one party. I was offered a cabinet post by another party. And I think that's what former senior military and former military can best bring to the political process is uh, a sense of independence from partisan issues and a, a desire to serve the country. And I commend people like General Kelly and General Mattis and General McMaster, uh, who chose to step up and serve. And um, I think that former military at every level, be they O3s or O6s or O10s, hopefully would bring, generally speaking, a centrist view, a nonpartisan view, and a policy and practically oriented view toward the world. That's what I, uh, hoped to do in one of those two posts, neither neither worked out at that moment, but perhaps I'll loop back for another bite at the apple at some point. And when uh, General Mattis and General Kelly and McMaster all did enter the administration, there was this uh, kind of idea that finally there are some adults in the room, um, and now that they're gone, there's some skepticism as to whether they were a good choice to have within the administration. How do you think the public should evaluate the readiness of retired military officers to serve as civilian policymakers? I would say if you look at the broad throw of American history, we have plenty of examples of outstanding former military officers who go on to serve the nation at extraordinary levels. I was the 16th Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. The first was General Dwight David Eisenhower, who of course became a I would argue, very successful two-term president. Um, 
I could go on and on. George Marshall, who serves both as Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, um, as well as having served during the war as effectively the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Colin Powell, who goes on to be, again, a very successful Secretary of Defense. I, I think if you look at the long throw of American history, there's plenty of examples of senior military, and by the way, mid-grade military and very former junior officer military who go on to do just extraordinary service. So I would think the public, if they had even a, a basic understanding of uh, where some of our most successful national figures have come from, uh, would continue to hope that uh, former military at, at, again, every level would be willing to come into government and serve. Uh, I want to backtrack to 2016, where there was a lot of controversy about retired generals and admirals deciding to make political endorsements and political statements. How do you think voters should think about the role of retired flag officers uh, playing in the political campaign process? Um, I am perfectly comfortable with retired senior military um, advising campaigns, endorsing candidates, running for office. There's a long and rich history of that in the United States. We mentioned Eisenhower a few moments ago. Um, I see nothing wrong with that. And I believe that the public is sophisticated enough to know the difference between a retired general and a retired admiral uh, and an active duty general and an active duty admiral. And so I have zero problem with that. And I recognize there are many senior military, including Admiral Mullen, with whom I've had this conversation on several occasions, who take a an opposite view of that. Uh, General Dempsey, former chairman, I think, also believes that when senior military get involved in that way, that it makes life much harder for the active duty. I just have never found it that way. And I, I believe that um, you serve the country as an active duty officer, and when you're done, you're done. And I don't think you go on wearing those stars for the rest of your life and therefore carry some kind of duty never to engage in the political arena. Um, so I'm very comfortable with retired military uh, getting engaged. Shifting gears a little bit, a few weeks ago, you wrote an op-ed in Time magazine about how there hasn't been a Pentagon press briefing in over 300 days. Uh, we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that's an important issue to you right now. I am concerned anytime our government uh, does not interact uh, deeply and broadly with the American press. And it's, it's always fashionable to kind of bash the press and bash the media. And I would say that if you're in the media, you know you're doing a good job when the Obama administration is dissatisfied with you and then the Trump administration is dissatisfied with you. That's just the norm of the media. But the media serve a a vital function in any democracy, and I think particularly here in the United States. And so I am concerned when I see uh, any organ of government backing away from from engagement with the media, but I'm particularly concerned when I see our military do it. And the reason is because of the gravity and the weight of the missions that our military accomplishes, both life and death literally, in an operational context, um, but also the the strategic importance of our uh, engagement. And I think, therefore, the Department of Defense really 
is surrendering a very powerful tool on kind of three levels. One is to set an example. Um, we like to think of ourselves in the military as uh, the keepers of integrity and honesty and truth and uh, courage and honor and commitment to give the Navy core values. Um, when you refuse to interact with the media, you're not setting a good example, in my view, of standing up to those values of truth and integrity. Secondly, um, we surrender a channel from which we can provide input and examples of what we are doing to our partners, allies, and friends. Believe me, all around the world, people watch those press conferences and they want to know what the United States is doing in a military and in other contexts. So if we're not doing that kind of engagement with the media, our allies, partners, and friends don't have a chance to, in a very fulsome way, uh, see what we're doing. And then thirdly, and maybe most importantly, if we're not engaging with, with the media, we're not sending people out, our adversaries um, are not able to see the power and the scope and the capabilities of the U.S. military. That has a very profound deterrent effect. And if we're not going to be engaging with the military, and, and I'm not just talking about press conferences in the Pentagon, I mean embedding reporters, bringing uh, observers out to sea on our carriers and our submarines, sending them into the field with our uh, ground units, uh, flying them in our planes. That is a very powerful deterrent effect. So I think there's, uh, it's a real miss on all of those levels for us not to be interacting early and often with the media. Did you see the follow-up response to your op-ed pu published on the Modern War Institute? I did not. It was written by an Army PAO, and his argument was essentially, how can we as the military feel comfortable giving press conferences when we can't trust the media to report honestly? I was wondering if you have any response thoughts to that argument. His basic ar argument was that not doing press briefings is a way to keep the military out of politics, and that if, if there were press briefings, um, there would probably be political questions that would... You know, the answers would be politicized as a pro or anti-Trump sort of thing. I'm surprised to hear a PAO take that position. And I interact frequently with PAOs at all levels. Um, and I've, I've never heard a single one take a position along those lines. Um, and I think that's a, a mistake and a, a misunderstanding of kind of PAO 101. Um, any public affairs professional will tell you um, the media gets to pick the question, but here's a newsflash, you get to pick the answer. And if you don't want to dive into the morass of politics, you can quite easily in a press conference simply say, um, I'd refer that question to the Department of Defense mm -hmm. or refer it to the White House or refer it to State Department or simply decline to answer it. Um, anytime you are saying that you don't want to take advantage of the 90% of good things because you're scared of the 10% that might go wrong, uh, you're really missing the mission on public affairs. So I'm surprised to hear that. What was the rank of the officer who purported to have that view? Uh, I'm not actually sure. I can't remember. I, I, I think he might have been an 
he may have been a captain. Yeah, I think in 03 and 04. Um, I'm not sure. It was just a, it was an op-ed that was published on the MWI website. And there was a pretty uh, fierce backlash to it on the internet from a lot of scholars and retired PAOs. So it, it seems like it's been addressed a lot, but we just wanted to get your take on it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So you've written this op-ed. You've also written many books and many publications. You did a PhD in the middle of your career. So you've really established yourself within the military as having a reputation as a scholar and an academic. Whereas I think most people view military officers as mostly technical people, right? You just have to be proficient at your job, fly your plane, drive your ship, fire your weapons. Why did you think it was important to spend so much time on intellectual pursuits during your military career? Well, there's certainly a personal component to that. I have always enjoyed uh, reading, thinking, writing, uh, and I think that those are core skills for any military officer. Certainly, all of our military uh, leaders need to master the skills of the trade, um, and I would put you know, my ship handling abilities or my tactical warfighting skills up alongside anybody's. But I would say those are, uh, they are necessary, but they're not sufficient, in my view, for a military officer. And, and again, if you really look at the, the history of the military, so many of our, our military leaders are uh, thinkers and writers as well as warriors. And I think you have to be able to do both if you're gonna have a long-term career in the military. You can do very well, I would say, up to the 05 command level on a kind of purely tactical capability level. But I think beyond that, if you're going to have value to the organization, you've got to be able to operate on a wider plane. So that is what attracted me to it, both a personal interest in books and reading and writing. Um, And in, in another life, I would have been a writer or been a media person. Uh, I, I think there's um, a, a whole different alternative Jim Stavridis out there. Um, but I think also not only the personal, but my own view of the profession of arms is that it it requires the more senior you get, the more you have to read, think, write, and have the courage to publish your ideas. So we have a lot of classmates here at the Harris School of Public Policy who will probably go into careers that have nothing to do with national security or defense policy, but they still might be influential someday, either at the, at the federal level or the state level or the municipal level. What is the most important thing for them to know about the military? I'll tell you three things I think are important for them to know about the military. Uh, and one you just touched on is that we are not like the Jack Nicholson character in A Few Good Men, uh, frothing at the mouth at Guantanamo Bay, screaming, you can't handle the truth. But I think it's important to know that we are a profession who will fight the nation's battles, but we also want to think our way through them. Number two, I would tell any civilian, and I often do, that the military works very hard Uh, to live up to courage, honor, commitment, truthfulness. Sometimes we fail, but when we do fail, we're accountable. And we're an organization that has core values. And then number three, I think I would say to 
uh, your classmates that military, the military uh, exists in the world, in, in the international world, and therefore represents the country in, in so many different ways. And that is um, important for them to understand uh, that the military is is not just a war-fighting machine, but also has a broad role as a representative of the United States, supporting our diplomats, supporting our development leaders, and that we are practitioners, not only of those hard power skills that they associate with us, but also supporters of the most broad sense of who our country is in the world. I think all three of those things are important. Guys, I got time for one more. Okay. When voters and citizens evaluate the success of the military, what kinds of things do you think they should be looking at? They should, uh, first and foremost, ask themselves about technical competence. Do we fly our planes safely? Do we operate our ships well? Um, is our ground forces uh, capably operated in the field? And when something goes wrong, as it did uh, two summers ago for the U.S. Navy with two terrible collisions, is there harsh, immediate, and effective accountability imposed on those who have failed? And do we make the effort to correct ourselves moving forward? Let's take those two collisions. Um, the Navy went out afterwards and fired the four-star, fired the three-star, fired the two-star, fired the Commodore, fired both ship captains, both ship executive officers, and the senior enlisted on both ships. I would defy any big corporation or bank in America to show me an instance where they have failed badly and have therefore imposed that kind of accountability. So I think civilians ought to continue to expect us to have high technical competence in the accountability that goes with it. Secondly, they should evaluate us on our effects. Are we uh, capable of changing the course of events in a way that's positive for the United States? And, you know, let's face it, like any human endeavor, we do very well at some, and sometimes it doesn't go that well. I think we did a very good job in the Balkans um, helping bring peace to that region. I think a very good job in Colombia defeating the insurgency. I think that um, Iraq is more of a mixed picture, but I could make the argument, and I often do, that um, had we not invaded Iraq, um, Saddam Hussein would be running that country now, and I don't think he would be any friend to the United States. How the story of Iraq comes out, we still don't know. Afghanistan, I think, is a, an even dimmer picture, but I think there's still a chance we can pull something out of uh, that. So I, I think the public should judge us on our output. And then third and finally, they should uh, judge us on our, as we've talked about a couple of times in this podcast, on our values. Um, and different than our technical competence, different than our operational effect, they should judge us on our values. Admiral Savridis, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate you coming on the show. I hope your podcast goes well and uh, your classmates get something useful out of it. It was fun talking to you. Those were all good questions. All right. Thank, thank you, you so sir. much, sir. Appreciate it. You bet. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. 
be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Haziano, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. Our publisher is David Raban. Special thanks to Tracy Logan and Sarah Claudi. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. See you next time. Chicago. The Windy City, the city of broad shoulders, the second city, is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts, this is Chicagoland. Chicagoland.